You are listening to Jai Long and this is Make Your Break. Welcome back to the show, entrepreneurs and hustlers. Today, I've got a special episode with you. I actually get interviewed in a bit of discussion with Joyce Mora, one of my really good educator friends from Spain. He has a podcast called House of Rebels, which is all in Spanish. And if you want to hear this actually in Spanish, you can go check it out on his podcast or you can go check it out on his YouTube channel, which is really cool. So today's a little bit of a special episode. It's a little bit deeper for me. And to be honest, I kind of think I would want some more interviews like this. I think it's really cool to do longer form stuff where we can dive in a little bit deeper, get a little bit more vulnerable. And I share a few things today that I've never shared before. And I think sometimes it's important, as Joy tells me, because you can look at somebody's ending or last pages of a book and you can think they got it all figured out and they've had it easy and it's been a clear path. So I've shared quite a few things behind the scenes for myself to get me to where I am today and the path that I had to take and maybe some of the obstacles I had to overcome and the way that I felt and things like that. And I think it's going to be pretty interesting. So a little bit of a trigger warning for some as well. Like there are some darker moments that I talk about and there are some, I don't know, sometimes it can be like heavier to to talk or think about these type of things. But if you're in the right headspace and you want to hear behind the scenes of my life um, and what it takes to be an entrepreneur, to get out there and to survive and thrive through chaos and when things are not going right and keep focused towards your goals and then actually succeeding and achieving and so this episode doesn't actually go over the last part so which is the last few years of my life but it goes over sort of my childhood all the way up to around about when I started photography and I talk about how I started as a wedding photographer as well so if you don't know that story in deep detail you're going to find out like what that was like how it felt and everything else which is pretty cool now before we get into today's episode I would love to invite you to leave a review to the podcast. We're not running any ads on this podcast and I really do appreciate all the reviews. I jump on every week and and I read those. It helps our podcast get further out to the world. And that little bit of kindness towards me, it's not lost on me. So I am doing a giveaway where I give a one-on-one mentoring session with one lucky person each month. So if you get a DM in your inbox from me, then that means that you did win, which is really cool. So head over, you can do it on the Apple Podcast app or in the show notes, if you're listening on Spotify here, you can scroll down, you'll see a link where you can leave some reviews and everything else. Now let's get into today's episode. You're Joy Zamora. We're in Spain right now. You're a business coach. You're a photographer. Been doing that for a long time. You have a podcast mm-hmm. which we're on right now, House of Rebels. If House you're listening Rebel. to this on mine on Make Your Break, yeah. You're a loving yeah. I'm still husband. I'm still a wedding photographer. You're uh, a loving husband, son. Yeah, I am a curious person who loves. You got two learning. dogs. Yeah, my kids. <laughs> Good and Dante. I'm, I'm actually happy that they're not around here. Otherwise, they wouldn't let us do anything and yeah that's the simple summary of who i am yeah who are you yeah so my name is jai long i'm actually australian so i'm over here just on a little tour from the i went to the u.s did a workshop we are running a workshop together next well starting tomorrow Tomorrow. which is amazing (laughs) and i never thought i'd have like it's only a small workshop there's 10 people in total Mm. and i never thought that we would have a sold out workshop in spain together so uh, i think we're breaking both of our limiting beliefs 
Yeah. And we're on to the new thing. So I'm a, I'm a business coach. I've got a podcast called Make Your Break and I do a whole lot of wild and very random things in my life. And yeah. Okay. That's me. So this conversation for me, I don't want to talk about specifically anything. Like That's I want to get to know you because through these days that we have spent together, I have to start digging a little bit in the surface of who you are. And I You've been think, asking some very deep questions, i got to say. And, it, and out of nowhere as well, it's like we're having dinner and you'll be like, Joe, what's the meaning of life, do you think? Yeah. And I'm like, oh, shit, we're going I there. do that. I do that often. Yeah, you um, do. Yeah, because when you don't expect it, it's the best moment. Now you expect them. So yeah, I, I want to see how you respond to them. But Well, another thing is like it's hard for me to like let down my guard when we are talking like this and we're on live and things like that. Mm. But you're right. Like when we're having conversations so often, I don't know if you feel this way, but you wish you could pull out a microphone and start recording oh. the conversation because you're like, oh, this is the magic. The day that they invent like kind of device that you can go back and just take mm. that, that would be amazing. I, I always feel it like when I'm talking to OP, to my wife or to you or, or a friend, Oh man, yeah. it's like, I wish I made a reel of this. And then when I you know. have to do it, it sounds artificial, it sounds fake. Yeah. It's just So how do we get deep and then also be real, you know? I am actually I've got to be honest, I'm gonna be transparent here, but mm -hmm. I do hold a big wall up yeah. around me mm -hmm. so I don't let people in. So I find it really hard. Like I'm very like I do get vulnerable and stuff, but I actually find it really hard to show myself. And so when you got cameras and lights, it's actually pretty Well, pretty let's, hard. let's let's try to, to start. <laughs> let's start. I mean that's an amazing thing that, that you say it, because when you say it, I think you are gonna be less conscious about the Very fact right. that you open yourself, like the thing here, like we all have our issues <laughs> and, and actually look, talking about that, taking about, talking about the walls that you build in front mm. of yourself. Yeah. Why do you think that happened? Why do you think that you have these walls around you? Do you show, because you are an educator and you are out there in social media, you have a massive audience, you have people looking up to you. So why do you feel that you had to build these walls? Like, what's, what's the point? It's a, a coping mechanism for mm -hmm. me. And that's what, like, I've just started therapy the last few months, like maybe three, four months. And we're kind of diving into that. And, and my therapist is, was the one, he said that I've got a wall there. And what's really interesting is he said, Jai, I want you to imagine this, go into this place. You're in the universe right now and you're just floating around in space. And everyone's just floating around doing their own thing and they're, and they're discovering everything. And what I've done is since I was a kid, I started building a block wall. And now the block wall is really big and it's impenetrable, but I stand, like I float there and just look at the wall. And then other people can't see me because I'm behind the wall. But if I just turn around, it's infinite possibilities and I can do anything. And, or I could float above it or behind it or around it or I could do anything. But I... I know the logical steps on how to get around the wall, but I just can't. And so he says, obviously it was like a, a like a, for me, it's a coping mechanism. It helped me when I needed it and it, it made me survive. And now that I don't need it anymore, I find it really hard to try and either dismantle the wall or just float away from the wall. And this, because this is something that I want to really go deep today. Everyone who knows you, including me, have this image of you of the successful educator, photographer, whatever. But I always had the feeling that in order to get to this point, you had to come from a place, you have a path. And I don't see many people knows about your path, which is quite crazy. Like 
it's, it's hard to believe everything that you have experienced. So you are talking about those walls that, that you were using to coping uh, as a coping mechanism. So I want the audience to understand a little bit more of where you're coming from, uh, because that's a huge part. That's who you are. That's everything. So like, tell us where you were born. How was your childhood? A little bit. It doesn't have to go really deep just for people to have a perception because we were talking about this yesterday in the wedding. I have a quite easy, normal childhood, you know? loving parents, blah, blah, blah. But your case was really different. Uh, so can you tell me a little bit of how it was that? Yeah, I can. And you probably have to ask more specific questions for it too, because I get asked that a lot and it's really easy to glaze over with no mm -hmm. emotion because obviously I loved my childhood. It mm -hmm. was really fun, wild, mm -hmm. and there was no rules and I could do whatever. And I love my dad. I love my mom. I love my brothers and sisters like crazy. I love the adventures that I got put on. I'm thankful for everything I got to experience. When I like reflect back and I look at it, there's a lot of times like in my life that I've sort of forgotten a lot of my childhood as a coping mechanism. Mm -hmm. There was, so I, I was born in Sydney and we were in a very low socioeconomic area with um, parents had no job or money or anything. And I actually think my dad joined the Hare Krishna community so he could probably get food and things like that. And I think he was a little bit, he was pretty unhinged kind of guy. So I think after his dad passed away when he was 11, he kind of turned to drugs and I don't think he ever sort of turned away from them. And as of lately, I've had some deeper conversations with my mom about my dad and stuff like that. And I've learned a lot more as of recent that I didn't understand back then, which was really interesting. But um, we were on the, so my dad used to move us around a lot. Um, we were on a waiting list for a home for seven years from the government and it was pretty wild because we lived in, at one stage we lived in a teepee. So my dad made a teepee out of some tarps from the back of a big semi-trailer truck and that was wild. We have a fire in the middle and stuff. We lived in tents. We lived in the back of cars. We lived in friends' houses. We lived out in the street. We lived everywhere. We lived in the bus. We lived on the beach. And um, it's a very nomadic life and I didn't do too much schooling back then. And, and like when I think back, I think I romanticized a little bit because I think it was just like so fun. You were a child as well, right? Like how, old, how old were you when this happened? This is all before the age of 10. Oh, yeah. So you, you don't, you're probably even mixing things, right? Like yeah, I don't, I don't exactly. really remember mm. that well. So to put people in perspective, because you said nomadic and nomadic sounds romantic, isn't it? Yeah. But do you remember how it would be a, a normal day in that part of your life? Yeah, well, that's when it gets less romantic, I guess. My dad was pretty violent. And so there was a lot of domestic violence and stuff. And he had a drug issue and you need money to fund that. Mm. And so what I found was I always felt like that um, when the money ran out, then the beatings would get harder. And then it was... In my mind, I was like, if we just had money, we'd have happiness. I always thought that because that was the root of all evil, not having money and being unstable. And so, yeah, like I think just on a day-to-day, -day, there was a lot of like, yeah, domestic violence when we first moved into our house. Um, I lived in a women's refuge for a while with my mum and then my dad found us where we were and it's all like broken families, like mums that have been beaten up with kids and there's all like diseases through there and like it was a pretty not the best place to be, you know, spending your time or whatever. And, um, yeah, I just think about like, there was, you asked me yesterday, like what was sort of the happiest moments? And I actually struggle sometimes to find the happiest moments. I was always happy, but there's, I think when you have trauma, you think of those things first. 
because it's kind of like the thing that stands out the most in your mind. So you kind of go back to that space of, oh, my God, I'm glad I'm not there anymore or I'm not experiencing that or, you know, things like that. And I think that's pretty interesting. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So you don't, like, we have talked a lot about how gratitude is an amazing thing and how I think everyone that we look up, like everyone that we admire, talk about gratitude. Mm. So what do you take from that part? Like obviously knowing that it wasn't the easiest part of your life, what did you take that from now and that you can be grateful about? Man, so much. I think like one thing is when you meet really successful people that have actually built it from their own back, a lot of the times they've been through a lot of hardship. And so because of that reason, you notice that they move through the world with a lot of they're, they're like grateful, like deeply grateful, not like fake grateful on Instagram, like deeply grateful. Yeah. And you see that in, and I see that in people all the time. I'm like, I can't believe it. I'm like, oh, my God, like the, yeah, just you being thankful for the opportunity that you have right in front of you, even though you built it, it's still the fact that it's just happening for you. And my whole childhood has built me to who I am today and it's like given me tremendous amounts of like happiness now. Like I, I it's hard for me to not be happy and I think that all comes from having perspective. Like you got perspective on where you could have been or where you should have been or what could have happened or what's happened before or how other people have had it. Yeah. And then you look at what you got and then and for me right now I have peace and peace is fucking crazy wow. to experience That's the best thing ever yeah and so then it's like it feels weird that the reason why i started going to therapist because i'm like i'm really uneasy and he said why and i'm like because i feel peace and i don't feel like i deserve it you're not used to it i'm not used to it it's like this uncomfortable feeling of like fuck like I, i'm experiencing something that i don't like chaos keeps me saying chaos is what i understand i thrive in chaos all entrepreneurs thrive in chaos yeah it's like your framework is completely different that it was yeah. supposed to be you know like people feel more comfortable in peace you feel more comfortable in chaos exactly and so your identity is attached to it it's like what the fuck am i supposed to do now like if yeah. i feel peace like if you take away the survive um, aspect of my life it's like what else is there mm. yeah it's like I guess, like when you, let's say, a crazy example, no, but in case that uh, you heard about these cases of people that have been, you know, in a wreckage and they have been a castaway and they had to get used to survive in the wildness. And then when they have been taken back to society, they don't even know anymore mm. how to handle. But there is something interesting because while I was listening to you, I was thinking about you speak with such a much respect, peace about your family mostly your parents, because obviously your brothers and sisters were probably in the same situation that you do. So there's nothing to judge about them. But when your parents, I, I can't imagine, no, like it's so easy for a kid to complain about parents, even if they are amazing, they don't buy me this, they don't understand, they don't treat me well. So how it has been for you, like the thought of not feeling that anger towards them and just to make your peace with that? Because I think that's mm. really hard. It is really hard and, and one really weird thing about me and I don't know if it's like nature or nurture but I grew up really young so some people they say some people grow up and they have a lot of empathy and some people need to be taught empathy and I had a lot of empathy since I, like I was a tiny child and so like when all these things were happening to my mom or when you know all these things happen to my dad and stuff or my family like I just always felt so much empathy like I, I felt it deeply you know like there's this one just thing and I don't know if like my mum's listening right now but I remember and, and she'll remember this story but she wanted to buy me a bike like a brand new bike 
And I was like, oh my God, I can't believe it. And I tried to talk her out of it because I was like, mom, there's other things like we need food. There's other things that we need. I can get a bike from the, you know, the garbage tip, which I usually did and put it all the, pe- like all the pieces together and I'd ride that around. I'm like, we just don't need it. And then she was like, no, I'm going to get it. And so she did it, but she put it on lay-by. So it was like a payment plan for 12 months. And I think it was only like $100. And so I used to go in there with her. I would walk in there and she'd pay a little bit more and I'd look at the bike and it's coming, it's getting closer and closer. And by the time I finally had it, I seen how much work went into getting the bike. And it was like the most prized possession you could ever imagine. Like it, it's like amazing. And so I just remembered that of like the amount of gratitude that you could have for having a something, you know, it wasn't like I had a lot of things, but it was like, fuck. But like that it, was like amazing. It's amazing. And, and like just thinking, and the reason why that's such a, probably one of my favorite memories, it's not only just like my mom showing up, you know, when we had nothing, but it was also just me remembering the like tremendous amounts of gratitude. Like I couldn't even believe it you know and then when i finally moved into this house when we were 11 we i brought my brand new bike and i was in a low socioeconomic area and so um the bike was like a beautiful thing it was like dark like midnight blue like really nice bike right and we pulled up into the street and all the kids we had street kids everywhere so all the kids ran up to come meet us and stuff and i'm like whoa you have the fanciest bike i can't believe it and i remember this one kid he had red hair he came up to me and he's like can i ride the bike and I was like, yeah, you can. You can take the bike for a ride. And I, and I felt like it was like, um, don't know what it was, but I was like, it was really cool to have this thing and then I could share it with you everybody. Could share. Yeah, it felt nice to share. And then everyone enjoyed this brand new bike that was just cool. It is crazy that even though, yeah, you're talking about a dysfunctional family in a way, if that can be described in a way, but listening from the outside, it feels like your parents were really wise. Yeah, because, they were. Yeah, because, you know, like we always try to measure things about success, no? How, how much money, how much they can provide. But were they actively, like, what would you say? Like, how were they so balanced in a way? Mm. Because I don't think a kid is naturally super balanced. I don't, I don't believe it. Like, I don't, I, obviously you have maybe some good balance in your head but they have to tell you something in order to be, yeah, I don't imagine a guy, a young kid being so grateful and so calm like you. So what do you think they told you? Like how was the education at home? Like even though it was messy, do they, did they have time to guide you on where is yeah. that education coming from? Because you, you told me that one day that, yeah, they, they you're Hare Krishna and also the white kind of hippie. So it was that kind of lifestyle included in your education as well? Yeah. So like we were um, super religious and we we're in sort of, it's like in Australia, it's kind of almost like a cult. It's like this religious cult. And um, so they were like in the Hare Krishna beliefs. And that was really interesting because it's, that's just, again, it's like karma and like how you treat people and stuff like that. So there's a lot of good stuff about that, that philosophy. There's a lot of things I didn't love about it as well, like some, you know, some of the community aspects and things like that. And I got to say, like, when I think back in my childhood, like my mom cared so much about her kids and, and me in particular. Like, I feel like I probably had the best, I had the worst childhood out of all my brothers and sisters, in my opinion, and I also had the best Okay. Yeah. So like I probably had the worst as in like I'd probably seen the worst and I seen the best in Yeah, the motor stream. In in the family. And so like it's um it's sometimes it's hard to talk to my brothers and sisters about it. 
because they have a different perspective than I do or they experience different things and I don't understand what they went through. Like they went through harder things than I did in different aspects and, and you know, Anna and I went through different harder things that they don't understand. So that's a really interesting way to navigate, like navigate through that. But, yeah, I think my mum like really cared and she cared more than like, like she would always put us first and she would always be protecting us and doing the best thing for us. And even though sometimes that doesn't look right and my brothers and sisters could maybe even argue that like, it maybe it wasn't the best for us in the sense of like how they looked after us or raised us. Mm-hmm. But I honestly think in the circumstances that they had with what they're working with, with the hardship that they went through, my mom had a really hard life as well. I think they did the best that they possibly could. And so I see that and I'm like, shit, like if I could be half as good as that and loving and caring and, and with everything that I have that I've built, like it's, yeah, it's mind blowing. In which point do you think like things start changing for you? Like, okay, we have talked about your childhood. Then you get the house, you live with your parents. And uh, there's something actually I want to talk about because you said a, a while ago and you were talking about how you thought that the source of all the solutions were money. Yeah, that's because that's obviously the source of all the problems were the money, not having money, no? Yeah, For your father. Um, do you think that now that you coach about money and you have an open conversation and a really healthy conversation about money, mm. you're starting to get interested then about money I'm getting in that more. point? Money is an interesting one. Like obviously, I had a bit of a skewed relationship with it. Some people think like money is the root of all evil, and then I thought it was the opposite. I think you can have a skewed relationship with it. I don't think money itself is the problem ever. I think it's the education around money. So my parents had no idea about money or how the system worked, you know. So they had their own system. They were like a lot more spiritual and stuff like that. And, yeah, I think for me now, like I have dedicated pretty much my whole life into learning money and understanding it and understanding how the system works and where I'm supposed to fit in it. And I've like worked deep on that stuff. It's... I think the answer that I believe was is knowledge. It was like being empowered and not being controlled by not having the right knowledge and being a victim of a circumstance. Because one thing was that I dislike, and, and this is all stuff I've got to work through, but what I disliked maybe the most about my father was his entitlement. So he didn't have any money, but he felt like he deserved it mm-hmm. and people should give it to him. Or like, you know, it was like little things like that. And so... I think there was a lot of entitlement and a lot of that all comes to a lack of knowledge as well. It's like you don't have a resource and then you think that you deserve it. Someone should give it to you or it should be easy or it should be something. And then when you move through the world with entitlement, it's really hard. Like everything's out of your control because you're literally saying the blame somebody else's. You're blaming someone. It's not yeah. yours. And when the blame someone else's, you can't fucking do nothing about that. It's harder. So I realized really quickly that like everything's my fault. And if it's my fault, it's awesome because the easiest, that means it's in my control to fix. It's like, I need to look inwards all the time. So you learn really easy to take responsibility, basically. Yeah, I've always taken responsibility as well. So. And when you thought, okay, so since I guess start getting a little bit better somehow, but when you decide that you want to learn and you want to educate yourself and you want to get out, I guess because you want to get out of this situation, Do you think about getting out of that situation alone or do you think about getting that situation because to save your family or how do you do it? Because I guess it's like when a 
ship or a boat is sinking and you don't have that much time to think really, oh, I have to save everyone. Like I had, I, I think it's such a hard decision to, to think either I save myself or I ain't going to drown with everyone else as well. Well, that was one of the hardest things to deal with. And now that I'm like older and I've talked to my brothers and sisters, like I've, there's some, I think from my brothers and sisters, there might be a little bit of resentment that I left them when I was younger because I was the oldest. Because when, when did you left? I left home when I was like 15 or 16. And they were younger? They were all younger. And like, obviously I hold a lot of guilt because that's really hard for me to even hear that or to experience that. But from my point of view, it was very different because my point of view was, I felt like at the time I was really struggling with just a lot of things, like um, struggling with my dad being on drugs and, and like living back out in the streets at this stage or struggling with like not having an education and feeling like I was way behind, struggling with I have no money and I feel stuck in a situation where I'm living in this house with, you know, just everything. And I felt like I left because what I wanted to do was leave to go change my life to get a job so I can make money to give money more money to my mom so she could feed my brothers and sisters more. And that's what we did. So I went and got a job and I got paid cash so I could keep getting government welfare because I got government welfare then. I think you have to be like 15 and nine months old or something. And then I gave that welfare check to my mom so then she could pay my brothers and sisters. But even though I couldn't even live out of home with the money that I was making, $5 an hour at the time, so it was like I was getting a second job and then it was just really, really hard. And so that went on for years. And so, yeah, it felt hard, but I was stuck between a rock and a hard place. It's like I either had to be there and be a victim of the circumstance or I had to unfortunately move myself into a new scenario. And it wasn't much better where I was living at all, but I felt like I had to sort of um, get that autonomy back around my life and become an adult and move on because it was time. You took basically the role of the father. Yeah, yeah basically. I think so. Yeah. Basically. Since you had described a childhood like a nomadic and you also say that you can romanticize things, like in which point here, because obviously you are no longer talking with that romanticism, no? Yeah. In which point do you realize that this is not romantic, this is not a cool lifestyle, I had to get out of here and actually made it? Yeah. So it was like older and I started feeling that way. So when I was like 15, 16, 17, 18, I was really getting serious about my life. And I was like, I need to fucking change my life. And what was interesting then was like, I didn't really go to school. So I had to like enroll myself in the school. I had a lot of people tell me that were like role models for me that, you know, I won't make it if I won't go to school. There's no jobs in this small town. It's impossible to get anywhere. You're going to be just like your old man or like your family, like go back to whatever it was. And it felt like I had my destiny carved out for me according to everyone that was around me. And so there's so many limiting beliefs. Like you can't make money, you can't do this. Everyone, yeah. everyone, everyone so negative, around you, negative, negative, do, negative. They not believe in you really. Yeah. Like they had the worst uh, because mindset. They, and because they don't believe in themselves. And yeah. I understand that. Like it's, you can't, like it's hard to try and thrive when you're trying to survive. So you're looking at someone else and you might as well tell them early that like give up because, yeah. you know, whatever. And so... I didn't believe that. And I always felt like I had something special in me and something special for me. So I was always, I guess, pushing towards that. Like I was like, I know this is not my story. I don't know why I thought that, but I was like, this is not my story. And I know that everything's figureoutable and I can learn something here. And 
I always, even to this day, I'm like I said, everyone, I'm like, this is not me. This is not where I'm, this is not my destiny. This is not my final destination. Like I'm going somewhere, I'm moving somewhere, I'm changing. And I think I've been like that for as long as I remember. So every single thing that I have had in my life that stepped me up in some way, I've been so thankful for every, every little handout, every job that I got that someone said yes, every, like everything. And I worked hard for everything, but like just getting the yes and the door to open. You well, know? The drive, like, I guess a lot of people that are listening, including me, that they always, yeah, me to find heart, to find the motivation to change, you know, like to lose weight, to go to the gym, to improve the health, to anything. What tip will you give them to them? Because it's like you have a endless fuel of motivation because it will be easy you know, for you to think, okay, I get out of that lifestyle, yeah, find yeah. a job. That's it. I made it. Just even if you just made it a little bit better and you just have food and shelter, that will be enough. But you're obviously ambitious in that way that you always find a motivation. Where do you find the motivation? What tip do you have to find motivation in life? I don't think there is any tip. And I think there's, um, I remember listening to this interview, I can't remember who it was with, and they were talking about how the, there's a lot of really successful people that went through a lot. And apparently there's a, an exact amount of trauma that you need to go through where you have the exact amount of pain where you're going to make a move. And making a move is less painful than staying where you are. And I honestly, when I look back, like it wasn't like, oh, I feel motivated or inspired or like, I'm just gonna, you know, like, you know, breathe a little bit and then go and do the thing. It was, it was more painful to be where I was than it would be to change. And so every decision that I made, every time I worked, you know, 20 hour days or every time like I lost, every time I did something, I'm like, yeah, but that was easier than staying where I was. And so if you're in that situation, I think like, if it's a tip for people, it's like you need to have some sort of purpose that's drives you or some kind of pain. Some kind of conflict, right? Some like, kind of something that yeah. like drives you further. And if you don't have it, don't look for it because if you got peace, keep it. You know, it's not Yeah, that's what I was asking. Yeah, I was going not, to ask it's you. It's not because, for everybody, you yeah, know. Yeah, I was like, thinking like <laughs> imagine like you have uh, you know, I maybe sometime like we because we listen every day now, like to these coaches and mentors and and this society that is telling you do more, do more, be more successful, do more, do more. And obviously people mm. are lacking that motivation because maybe they're already fine. And you it will be almost a torture, as you mentioned, or to look for that conflict just in order to get a motivation to get better. If you're fine, you're fine. Yeah. Right. That's right. And there's only really two things that motivate us. And like, and the biggest driver is like moving away from something. So you're mm -hmm. moving away from pain or you're moving towards something. So you're moving towards pleasure. And like, so if you're in the unique scenario where if you've got a lot of pain in your life and also you've got a big dream, then you're getting pushed and pulled. And so you've got double motivation because you're going to move pretty hard. Where some people, they might just be you know, it's like, oh, I want a slightly better house. So they're moving themselves towards something opposed to moving themselves away, away from because something. they're already in a comfortable house. Yeah. Okay. So how do you made it? How it happened, that transition? I know it's a, it's a <laughs> too big question to answer so fast, but like, what, what was your plan? Did you plan anything or did you just Every, Everything's always been the long game and everything has always been like, I've had to say yes to opportunities I didn't want to or do jobs I didn't want to or live in places I didn't want to. But I knew that every time I did something, it was getting me further and further towards my goals or, or whatever it is. So that was number one, like just staying focused all the time. I think, honestly, 
I feel like I've made it so many times. Like when you think about like when you win a goal, everyone says a goalpost move. But like honestly, I remember when I was hustling to get an apprenticeship and that was going to be the thing that changed my life. And when I finally got it and I signed the papers, I made it. I was like the most successful person I've ever met. Like I never met anyone more successful than me. It was crazy, you know, and I made $230 a week and I lived out of home and like, and then I ended up buying this shitbox car, you know, for $200 and moving my way up. And it's like, it's most, yeah, it was amazing. And then like the first time I got a job as a, um, like fully qualified electrician, it's like, I, I made it, you know? And so I've made it so many times because I've, I've actually, there's been so much weight for me for every small win that I've got, because it means so much for me. Where I think some people like they'll get a win and and they don't acknowledge it or they don't really care because they're so like the dopamine's already gone. It's like oh yeah, I deserve it. I need more. I need more. But I always felt like I didn't deserve it. So if you don't deserve it, then it's like wow, like the universe has talking has made to me. It was made an exception for me, and so then I better acknowledge it because it's like fuck, you know, this is I shouldn't be here. It's what I've always felt, you know. It's crazy though because you know one side you're saying this. But on the other side, you thought that you were special. That's something I just didn't know what that looked like though. Yeah. You didn't have anything to compare, I guess. No. And there was no vision for myself. It's not like I was like, I felt like saying it was special. Like something special for me was like, I, when I enrolled myself into school, I was like, I've made it. And I was like, I knew there was something special about me. You know what I mean? So it was like, I've, I've done something. And then when I got myself a job, I'm like, I made it. Like, yeah. I mean, and there's been so many small tension points like that i guess throughout my life and it's been fucking crazy <laughs> and when do you like when you went to school right for a mm. few years a couple of years yeah then you become illustration so from school i actually um i end up dropping out of school because i remember like at this stage this is when i started getting a little bit angry in my life and i think it's because i i seen people that are not even like had more money than me just a tiny bit and i seen them as so privileged i was like man all these privileged people when someone came up to me and they had a conversation of like what are you going to do when you finish school are you going to go to university what are you going to study like to me that was such a privileged conversation that i would i would have the shits with it because i was like man i wish i could choose what i could do but i have money couldn't. so i can survive and so i'm going to eat and like you know it's you cool. out of place right yeah like, it's cool uh, that you can romanticize about your future but i'm just romanticizing about some food you know and that's what it felt like for me So I left school and then I was like, I'm going to get myself an apprenticeship. And that was really, really hard. And no one thought that I could do it, especially as an electrician, like not finishing school and not finishing doing electrical work. And so I used to go down to the phone booth. I didn't have a mobile phone back then. There was phones back then. I just didn't have a phone. And I'd go down to the phone booth and every afternoon um, I had a like a laboring job for one of my dad's friends and I'd get $5 an hour and move bricks all day long and then I'd ride my bike down to the phone booth and I'd ring in the yellow pages or the white pages every day. I'd bring a new business to see, do you need an apprentice yet? Do you need an apprentice? Do you need an apprentice? And I'll just keep going through and through until finally someone actually answered my call and they said, we um, don't need an apprentice, but the new job site on town, which they're building an art gallery, they need a new laborer. And I was like, Really? So I rang up my boss then, quit my job. And then I went in town, got some new clothes. I got like a high vis and a whole bunch of things. I rang up my mum to see if I could um, borrow her car. I was not old enough to drive a car yet. She's like, yeah, sure. Why? And I said, like, I've got a new job. And I didn't ring up the, um, I didn't ring up the art gallery, but I rode my BMX over to my mum's house, which was like maybe 20 minute ride. Got to my mum's house, brand new shoes on and everything. 
took her car, drove home. And then I told all the boys I was living with, there's like five boys living in this three bedroom derelict house. And it's like a duplex next to the biggest drug dealer in town and everything. How old were you here? Uh, 16, I think. And so I was telling everyone, I was like, I just got a job. I've just made it. Like I'm starting work tomorrow. And none of them knew that I didn't actually have the job. Like I convinced myself. And then, um, I found out, I knew that they started work at 6am and that was dark. And so I drove there at 5.30 in the morning and I sat in the car park and I was waiting for everybody um, to like show up. And then I seen all the tradies showing up and all the big men walking on, on site. And then I seen the lights turn on. And then I seen like the manager's office, which was like this kind of like a shipping container and halfway up the hill. And so I walked my way up there like 10 to 6 and I knocked on the door and I was tiny because I was on a hill. So I was like really knocking up. And the guy answered the door and he looked over my head and then he looked down and pitch black. And he's like, what are you doing here? And I was like, I'm here to start my new job. I heard you need a laborer. And he was kind of thrown by it. He's like, what do you mean? And I was like, I can, I'm starting in 10 minutes. Like we start at 6 a.m. Yeah. Oh, just so you were so convinced. Yeah. And so he invited me in and we had a bit of a conversation and he's like, oh, so have you ever done laboring work? I was like, oh, I've moved some bricks and stuff. Um, we talked for like 15 minutes and then he was like, you know what? I'll give you a shot. Like you can start work today. And so I started working and, um, it changed my life because he was actually paying fifteen dollars an hour, which back then was a fortune. I was filthy rich. Like I, all of a sudden, I drove home. I had the job. He paid me cash at the end of the day, which was, I, I can't remember how much it was. Like one hundred and fifty dollars or Whoa. something. And I've never seen so much money. And I remember walked in, and all the boys are still at home. They were smoking weed and you know doing whatever. And I had one hundred and fifty dollars in my hand. And I threw it in there, and I was like, "Boys, I made it!" You know, I couldn't believe it. And we went out and bought a TV, and like, yeah, yeah like so you changed also a little bit the life of everyone. Yeah, was all of a sudden everyone's like, "We're rich!" You wow, know, like, you were streaming them. Wow. And what was interesting though to get my apprenticeship, so I knew this was going to run out. And even the guy said, "You got about six weeks worth of work." So what I did was I actually went to. Around the job site and I would ask everyone, are you looking for an apprentice? Do you need an apprentice? Do you need me to help me today? Like, do you need this? And um, also I've never done laboring before, so I didn't actually know what I was doing. I was walking around sort of like making it up until finally this one guy said, you know what? I've actually heard of an electrician across town and he was asking for an apprentice. And I was like, are you serious? And so like I rang him up and I was like, hey, I heard you're looking for an apprentice. I'm on this job site right now and I, and I can come over there. I can be there today if you want. And he was like, yeah, come on, come on over. Like, and um, we'll see what happens. And um, I went into the office and I quit my job. I was like, I've got a new job. I'm an apprentice. I'm an apprentice electrician. I can't believe it. I got it. I drove over there and the guy was like, um, well, you can't start yet. You can start like next year. So this was sort of like November or October. So he's like, you can month. start in January. But he's like, but I want to see if you're any good. So if you want to do a trial... I was like, I'll work for free for as long as it takes. Like, just let me be Get here. He's like, if, well, if you would do that, then that's fine. Like, I'll see you at work tomorrow. So then I'll drive myself. I was still in my mum's car. I'd drive myself to work. Mum would be like, I need the car. And um, I would get myself into work, work for free. I had no idea what I was doing, but I just kept showing up and kept showing up until finally he was like, at the end of the year, he was like, all right. Like, I think you have what it takes. And he knew that I was a rough kid from a rough neighborhood too. And he was like, he kind of like went around the bush, but it was like, if you can sort of let go of a lot of your past and maybe some of your friends and some of the things that you're into and, and get focused and stuff like that, then like, you know, it's a big risk. He was kind of like putting, you've never done schooling. Like there's a lot of stuff you got to do. He also, um, I was the only um, apprentice that had to pay for his own schooling. You have to do like um, college as well. And it was like a really hard apprenticeship. It's a big responsibility for them as well. Not yeah, to have you there. 
And um, I was so thankful when I got the job. And it was actually, uh, to be honest, and I don't know if my old boss would be listening to this ever, but it was fucking really hard. And I went through hell for him at this stage. And it was it was hellish, but I just never said anything. Like I got angry and angrier, I think over the four years, but I was like, yes, sir, like three bags full, sir. What else do you need, sir? And so that was, I would say almost the hardest three, like four years of my life, was, like doing that apprenticeship. Was it hard because? It was hard because I was living at home and I had no money and the, and the payment was like, I think it was $200 a week. So I was getting less than I ever had. And rent at the time was like all of that and food and stuff. So then I had to get a second job. So I'd work all night delivering pizzas. And then he didn't like that I had another job. And then I had to mow lawns to pay for college. So I would do all that on, all on the weekends. So I had no time left. And then I never did school, so I was failing. So I had to pay for a tutor. I started failing all the exams. I had to redo more exams after school on the second year, all the ones I failed on the third year. And then on the third year, I had to, all the ones I failed on the second year because I was doing the ones in the third, first year. So it was really, it was that whole story of me finishing my apprenticeship. And then at the end, he didn't want to give me my apprenticeship because he didn't want me to compete with him and start my own business. So he actually blackmailed me to come work for him for longer with no, like with less pay and everything. It was just such a mess, man. And I was fully taken advantage of. And it was, it was just hard, hard work. Like, oh, yeah. And I had sure, friends that I got now that did the apprenticeship, some, some of the apprenticeship with me. And he was like, man, I don't know like how you put up with it and did it because it wow. was just, it was like watching someone that was broken, just getting more broken every day. And it was hard, man. It was There's nothing hard. like, um, because now you're, yeah, you were a teenager. Teenager. A teenager. Yeah, I'm a teenager. And, uh, so you know. nothing in your daily routine looks like a teenager's life should look no, like. No, not at all. Like you I had time to make friends, to hang out with girls, to it wasn't have some like fun. Or... No, and I think, I, I guess I sort of had all of that because I lived out of home and I lived with, I lived in a house that was a halfway house where it was like, me and four other guys, and then we lived next door to the biggest drug dealer in town. So they had people all over the place. So there was always just people going on, which made it harder because I would be like, I need to go to bed. I've got like, you know, 6 a.m. Yeah, start no, no and everyone's team. partying and there's drugs going on everywhere, underage drinking. Anyone that lived at home, conservative parents, all be at our house. The cops would be coming over and there'd be fights all the time, knife fights, like all sorts of shit. And I'd just be like, I'm just fucking trying to go to sleep. And I'd be walking out there, you know, yelling at everyone like, fucking leave, <laughs> like, so I can get back to work. <laughs> it was hard. And yeah, I, I would I would honestly say in my adult life, those four years were the probably, I guess, like the build, building blocks of who I am today in terms of like how much I wanted it, how much I endured to make it happen. And also like me completing it was also like an unrealistic goal that showed me what was possible. So it gave me hope. Like it's, it was like if I did this. It's also crazy to see the person that you are now, how of a big achiever you are and how every time that you talk about education, you talk about going for things and actually acting. What it shocks me as well is that being that young, you were, you were already able to do things that from my eyes look like impossible. Like talking to like these two people that are idols and almost... You know, we, there are a lot of people talk about the lot of attraction or the visualization of it, but you were, you had such a clear path that made you almost an adult, which is really weird. weird. But the way that you were talking and selling yourself and, uh, and behavior is so weird, isn't it? 
They yeah, did. and I also think like so, like sort of growing up on the streets and in those kind of areas, you learn sales really well. You learn, yeah, you tell, learn how to sell tell. yourself because you have this weird unwavering confidence in yourself that like I'm here and I'm doing the thing and like let's make it happen. And like you kind of have to have that because if you don't, then you're weak, and when you're weak, you you sort of fall. You know, so like it's kind of like if you're in the jungle, you know, you have to show your strength. And, and the way that you do that is show that confidence of like this is what I'm doing or where I'm going or how I'm going to act or how I'm going to react and, and all this kind of stuff, which I learned really early on because there was a lot of, you know, a lot of violence on my street. Like every every woman got beat up by the guy like every kid there was a guy across the road he'll just get beat up by his dad all the time black yeah, guys everyone like, was in the same it's always similar. the same kind of shit yeah it was just fucking hectic and so everyone kind of learned real quick how the jungle works and i think um and that's like the confidence and then you see him and like yeah they're good at sales and they're good at backing themselves and and they're also good at like um navigating through hard situations because they've been through harder they don't do things that personal i guess no they don't have time for that right no, no. like i i i remember now you're just having a stupid small problems in my childhood like the most stupid thing yeah and thinking over and over again like but when you are living the life that you are mentioning that like you don't have time to worry that much about that little things that you see you kind of prioritize really well what is important and what is the not, big things right? yeah so okay you go to college right yeah. um for for electrician right yeah and i finished it completed it okay and then it was so hard man. step Well, I've got to say like one of the hardest moments of my life, and this is like um, really to put things in a perspective. So when I, when I first did my college degree, um, the first thing was there was 70 people in there over two classes. And the, the boss, well, the teacher, he came in and said, if you don't have at least year 12 maths and finish high school, you will not pass. And he's like, I'm not being mean, but like just statistics show we don't really have anybody. Anyway, so I like failed and I failed and I failed. And I think maybe nine out of the 70 actually went through and I was one of the nine. But for me to get through, I remember I failed. So the main, they had this main exam at the end. It's called a capstone test. I failed it, I think twice and I was redoing it for the third time. And I would have been the laughing stock of the whole state because everyone knew the kid that didn't make it twice and he's coming back to do it again. So when I walked into the room for the third time to do it with the the kids that, you know, they were like, I was third year when they were like first year sort of thing. And I was the only one and no one else would do that because they would, if they just failed, they'd just leave. They would not they go would through not try it the again. humiliation. Yeah. And I remember on the second, on the first time I failed and it was like humiliating. The second time, everyone laughed at me when I walked Shit. in to do it, even the teacher. And on the third time I remember Whoa. I had this teacher and his name was Norm. And when I walked in, everyone fucking cracked up laughing. They just couldn't believe it. And the teacher looked at me and he's like, no, don't laugh. You're he's passing. a guy that's that's like showing up and he's making this happen. And I remember the look on his face because he would, like he was almost in tears. He was like, I actually, and he came up to me. He's like, I didn't think you would actually show up. And then I was like, I'm, I'm like, Norm, I'm changing my life, mate. I'm fucking It's doing crazy it. how they are these people, like even though just a little gesture through yeah. your life, like you even a small thing yeah. you will remember forever. Isn't yeah. it? You're that great. Who do you think like has been those people? Do you have a few of them or just? Oh, there's been a lot of them. Yeah. Just people that have given me some kind of kindness and I fucking yeah. I always remember. So you become an electrician. Yeah. Now you are certified, you pass, you are. 
What did you do next? I quit my job because I was like, well, I don't need to be an electrician anymore yeah, I, because I, I was finished my the, apprenticeship. This was with almost the asshole, right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so okay. I quit my job and I was like, I don't need to be an electrician anymore. Like I was like, all I wanted was to finish the apprenticeship and do college. And then once I did that, I was like, I'm done. So um, that's when at that stage, my dad went into rehab and um, I was with Lilo. And he was like going through a bit of a hard time. And then I realized like I need to get him out of rehab and I need to get him a job. So at that stage I was living um, just down the road and I was doing the same thing. I'll go down to the phone booth mm. and I'll bring up businesses to see if anyone got a job for my dad. No one did. And he was unemployable. Like he was missing all his teeth. He was like super skinny. He's been homeless for a long time. Like he's been on drugs for a long time. Like he So looks... he wasn't no longer in the house, in the family house? No, no. He was in like an actual rehab center. Okay. So um, I realized that for me to get him a job, I need to be an employer. And then I started working out. I was like, if I was an employer, does anyone give any rules for me? And I realized there is no rules really. And so then um, I told Lilo a dream back then. I was like, when, I'm, when we're old and we're about 30 years old, I said, um, I'd love to start a cafe one day. And this was a couple of months before I started my cafe. And she was like, oh, yeah, that'd be amazing. I was like, imagine it. It'd just be an imagine, like a magic dream. Anyway, so when all this happened with my dad, I was like, Lilu's parents had this property and they, they I used to have like a cafe on it and they were leasing it out at the time. And I sort of put two and two together in my head and I was like, wait, if I start a cafe, then I'm living my dream 10 years before I'm supposed to, for starters. I'm, why not do it now? It makes sense. And the second thing, I can give him a job and like that would be amazing. And so I signed a lease and we went ahead and we did that. Um, and I did all the maths that I thought was right. And I, I like worked at the maths, like, oh, I need a barista. I need some floor staff. I need to hire and rent and do all this kind of stuff. And what I didn't realize is my dad actually came out of rehab and then he ended up dying of a drug overdose um, as he came out. And it's, I feel like partly responsible because he was tamed to stay in my caravan. Actually, at this stage, I moved home at my mom's house and I lived in the caravan in the front yard. And um, he was staying in my caravan and the first night out and he wasn't supposed to be out and i don't know why but i was like i was with leela and leela's like we're going back home to my house like let's go and i was like dad if you can just stay here the night like just chill don't be seen by mom my mom had her just home. in the caravan he yeah in the caravan in the front yard the i'm like can you just stay in here chill chill be quiet like you know she's gonna hit the fan when everyone finds out that you're out of rehab and stuff and then i left and then went over to leela's house and then the next day I come back and the police were standing at the front. And so he went over to a friend's house and the friend, there's like a bit of controversy around how this happened, but the friend that he was staying with had a wife that he induced a drug overdose in, got convicted and went to prison. And everyone said like, like he did it on purpose. So my dad died of the same thing in his house and then his money was gone, which was only like a hundred dollars. Yeah, but for someone like that. Yeah, and so it was like a little bit of a weird scenario around that. But um, the testing thing was like he was going to be the chef of the cafe and so all of a sudden I had to find new money and I had to grieve and I had to work out how to run a business, which I had no idea. And all of a sudden everything became real because I was like hiring things, renting things, leasing things borrowing things like you know everything and um starting cafe I was marketing and i was like advertising and i was in the paper and we're doing like pr stunts and fucking everything we literally did everything try and get 300 people through the door we ran little music festivals and all sorts of stuff and then we got poorer and poorer and Lilo and i had to move into the shop so we'll live in there because we would just work all day and then just sleep you know in the cafe and the couches and stuff and it just got harder and then i was running out of money 
So then I put an ad out. This is actually a funny story. Oh, actually, I'm sorry. I was reading an ad trying to find a job as an electrician, but because my past boss wouldn't give me my ticket as a, a fully qualified electrician until I went and worked for him again, I couldn't actually apply for a job. So I was like stuck. And so this was like the ending of that whole scenario. So I seen a job that was on, on the Gold Coast and it's like probably an hour and a half drive from where I lived. And he, I was looking at it, I was like, that's the perfect job. So I wrote him an email and I just wrote like, his name was Leith. I wrote him an email. I was like, I know that you probably have so many overqualified people in your inbox right now, sending you cover letters and resumes and everything else. But I bet you no one said that they're willing to show up and work and do whatever it takes. And if you're looking for that person, that's me. And he rang me up within five minutes and he was, he was like, man, i got 500 resumes here. Sorry, it was 300 resumes here. Nice too. Yeah. That, um, and he's like, no one's even mentioned work. They all want to know how much they're going to get paid and also all their qualifications. They're overqualified for the job. You did a, a good copy, right? Yeah. There. You had it I know. In so blood, I saw right? myself. And he's like, when can you start? And I said, I'll be there <laughs> tomorrow. Yeah. And so I was up there tomorrow. Yeah. And when he seen me, a friend had to lend me his car. We gave me his car, this shit box car. And so when I showed up, he was like, is that your car? And I was like, yeah. And, and I was like, I've got a cafe. And I was explaining it all to him. And he's like, man, you're a mess. He's like, all right, you can come work for us. So I used to travel. So it was two hours to like to his house and then up to the job. Work 10 hours we used to do. And then two hours back. So 14 hours per day, I'd come back to the cafe. And then I'd help Lilu clean and do everything. I'd do that five days a week, get my money, which was like $1,000 a week. And then I put in the till on Friday, work Friday night, Saturday morning, all day, Saturday lunch, Saturday night, dinner, always the 1am pack up, the morning straight away, always Sunday night and then pay all the wages and then there'll be no money in the bank account and then Monday back up 14 hours to do that. So night. the cafe was eating all eating the everything, all everything. crazy machine of eating the money. And then a rent started going up and everything and then all of a sudden, this was actually a hard thing for me. One of the hardest things I felt was like Lilu's parents were renting it to me and a hard thing that uh, I haven't really voiced about to anyone really before, but they started seeing and thinking I was really successful because more people were coming in. And then so as more people came in, I had to get more staff. And so it, got, it did get big and it got successful. From the outside, it looked successful, but I had to get more gear and I had to get, there was no money actually getting to generated invest yet. in the growing of the At business. all. And so they started going like, well, we gave you cheap rent, but we're going to put up the rent. And so they did it a couple of times. They kept putting up the rent. And I was like, I can't actually afford the rent. I, I'm going backwards. I had to get credit cards and try and pay more. And then it, Lilu was the one that was actually like, I think enough's enough and we have to close the door. And that was like 12 months after we Because it was going to affect also the family dynamic, right? Like yeah, it was, exactly. Uh, it was too exactly. much. It was so much. And then, yeah, we had to, we had to, I had to let go of every, I had to walk away from everything that I, built that whole all that four years that i saved up all that money yeah that's why everything good. that i did and then everything that you build up all those years of effort and, and now you are in zero again yeah and that's what it felt like it was it was um that day was like letting go of everything that you've ever built you feel like um i think there was so much shame as well because i'm like all of a sudden i'm just like i'm a failure like i thought i was special and i thought i could do things and all of a sudden it confirmed that i'm not and how I wasn't long, supposed to how do long did it last the cafe yeah, one year exactly. So since your father passed away in that, that time, yeah. So he passed away. So that away was when it was before. Open. Just so when when it just when it was yeah. Open. So it opened like maybe a week or two weeks after he passed away. Yeah. So when he passed away, we were like renovating and building and stuff, and then the party happened for the opening party, and it was like sort of around his funeral kind of thing. It's crazy to mix 
those moments. It, it right? was like, like a, it you was, didn't you didn't even have time to grieve, right? No, like there a, was no grieving. It was just working, surviving, trying to pay everyone, trying to keep everyone on my back. And and then at the end of it, the sort of the saddest moment I ever had in my life, and the happiest moment was when we closed the shop, because Lila and I we drove, we closed it. We're living in that shitty van that we had, and we drove out to the beach. And that night, um, honestly, I remember I was sleeping in the car and I was like contemplating my whole life. I was like, what the fuck am I doing? Like, what do I do here? And then I remember I was looking out the window and it turned into my happiest moment of my life because I was looking at the window. And I think it was like for the first time I like experienced any kind of feeling for my dad. And I was watching the sunrise because it comes up over the ocean and the breeze was coming in and Leela was there and I had so much gratitude and I was like, whoa, like... I don't have the pressure on my shoulders anymore. It's what it felt like. And I can finally let go. And in that moment, it felt like I could finally start again, you know? So it was, I think you, you build and build and work and work and you forget why you're doing it all. And at that moment, it's like none, none of it actually mattered. And now I'm a free boy once again, you know? <laughs> wow. Yeah. What does a free boy does then? Like when you have to go like, like the normal thing for anyone will be like fine enough, easy job, easy <laughs> yeah. life, going into an office. Um, you, I, you know, something simple, but you, I know the answer. <laughs> so, well, well, I know the answer is not that one. So what happened there? Well, the next thing was, um, So for me to not go bankrupt, and I went and got some advice from some people, and for me to not go bankrupt, it was... Yeah, maybe face this way. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to get in the shade. For me to not go bankrupt, it was about um, getting the money back to everyone that I owed and paying off everything. And so I was talking to my brother-in-law, Kyle, and he was like, oh, I've actually... We were working for a company and they went up to the mines for a bit and they're like, there's a lot of people making some really good money on the mines. Like you should come up here and work. And so I did, and it was really good money. And it was, it was like a prison sentence though. So you live in like a little cell basically, it's called a donger, but it's like a cell. And um, I was out in like far Northwest Queensland and you just out there and you work six weeks at a time, six weeks on, one week off with basically no days off. And then um, you work yourself to the bone. And, and then like, after all of that shit that just happened, I was like, I just have to stick it out for a couple of years, pay back this money. And then I'll be all good again. So then I'll be free. And um, it was really hard. And then and then Lilu ended up leaving me because she, like I put her through so much trauma and stress of just the cafe and everything. We were too young for it. And also when you go to, to the mines, you were really far away as well. I was really you far away. You were on the other side of the country. You were well, thousands well, of miles away. Well, the interesting thing was I was actually there for a long time, like maybe six months. And then finally I had this dream. I was like, I'm going to come back. I was only going to do six months to start off with. Okay. And um, I'm like, going to come back. We rented a house with some friends on the Gold Coast. It's going to be really good. And the job finally finished. And then I moved back to where she was. So I had my car full of stuff and I finally got back. And I was like, Lilo, I missed you. Like I, um, I, I've been literally looking at the fucking wall. There's all, every, all is in your room is a toilet next to a bed and that's it. Yeah, it's a fucking prison, literally. Yeah. And so you, you're in there with your thoughts basically forever. And I finally got back. And um, when I got back, She was like, well, to be honest, like, I think it's over. Like, it's just been too hard. And I was like, holy shit. And at that moment that she said that, I got a phone call from my boss that was up there. And he's like, I've got a little bit extra work. I didn't want to tell you, but if you get up here by tomorrow, which was so far away. Yeah. And he was like, you can. Fly. You had to fly. No, I had to drive. Yeah. You have your job back. 
And my car was already packed and I was like, oh my God, okay, well, I'm fucking out of here then. So I jumped in my car and I sped all the way up so much so that I got pulled over by the police three times. And they were like, you can't be going this fast. And they wrote me a ticket and another ticket, another ticket. And the third guy was like, we can lock you up for this. Like, why are you driving so fast? And I was like, I'm changing my life. I need to get to this job. I don't care if I get fines or how Fucking much it costs hell, me. Man. If I have no license, you take my car, it doesn't matter. And so I got myself to the job. And then from there, I basically worked in the mines for probably another year and a half between there and like um, in Western Australia as well and around the place. And I've got to be honest, like that was probably the second hardest part of my life. Second hardest than <laughs> the electrician. Yeah, well, it was pretty hard. It was almost up there with the first hardest. Oh, how, how, like, I just trying to imagine, and it's it's really hard to imagine it. Like, I never experienced anything even close, and I'm glad I didn't, honestly. Mm. When you get bad after six months in a fucking prison, after the fucking decay of the coffee place and mm. all that shit, and your father passing away, everything we talk about, how... What happened in your head when you heard Lilo saying, I don't want to be with you? Because I guess that was one of few thing, good things that you had. The only thing at that How stage. did you yeah. stay positive? How, honestly, and this is, I know it's a mm. tough conversation, but for way less thing, I had really bad thought for mm. really, like, how did you stay alive? It's, I don't know, actually. And it's really interesting because it was just... It's like you don't really know what to do. So then you've got to recollect your thoughts and just go and do what you think is good and and then go from there. Like it was, it is really hard to, and and like, and then especially just getting back there. I got back there. I was celebrated that I left and I was back in the same room, but no one else was there. So I you was the like, only one. I was the only one. And so the weird thing was all my friends that were there now, I'm the only one. Now I was even more recluse and secluded than I ever was. And it's a fucking grind. You work like just a picture the day you wake up before the sun rises. Um, someone comes and knocks on your doors. They go through and knock on all the doors. Then you go put on some clothes. You hop in a bus. They take you to this place called the dry mess. Dry mess is where you line up like cattle and they feed you like trays of food. You eat all the food. Then they put you onto a bus. You go to the job site or to the mine. So you have construction workers or miners. I was a construction worker. So I went there. You work until dark and then you go back to your little donger. And then from there you get like half an hour rec time. So I would go to the gym and it'll be like floodlights with like barbed wire going around it and some big guys in there and, and then you'd be intimidated. You go to the gym for half an hour. Then you got to catch some bus and they take you back to the dry mess and then you get some food. And then you get to go to the wet mess for half an hour where you can actually have a beer and then they take you back. And then so you just continue that for six weeks and then and then you get to have a week off, you know, and you sleep for a week basically. Yeah, hey, man. Yeah. So where, that, do, where do you find the motivation then? Like, what's the motivation? Sleep? Uh, yeah, I think so. Like, <laughs> well, I think for me, I've still had this notion that I was like changing my life. Like I was like... But how, how, were, going, how were you going to change it? Were you studying? Like, were you able to like educate yourself or putting yourself in a slightly better position or you were mo making enough money that you knew that when you get out, you were going to have a... I knew Something. that I made enough money that when I got out that I was like, I'm going to buy a house one day. I'm going to, I'm going to do the things I got to do to not be back in this situation. And that was it, you know, and I didn't know what that looked like at all. All I knew was just like, get through this bit. You've been through harder. And then once you get through this bit, there's something better for you. And I'm supposed to be here. And I remember I was t I told you this yesterday. It's like this weird feeling that you have, like it's called success tax. A lot of people call it. And it's like you're, you're paying the price 
for the success you know you'll have. Mm. You just don't know how that looks and why you got to pay the price. But if you don't pay the price and go through the hard things, you won't have the same perspective or the same success when things go good. And so for me, it's easy to show up when things go good now because like when people say like, oh, I don't want to show up, I'm not motivated. It's like, I'm not, I don't need motivation to show up. I already had it. So there's a lot of things that are foreign concepts to me that I hear in like the entrepreneurial space or the coaching space or the creative space because it's just that sometimes, and I, and I feel, I don't know why, but I feel guilt around this, but I, I don't experience the same problems that people experience in that aspect. Because when someone, for instance, they talk about like imposter syndrome, I'm like, shit, that's like, I've never felt that. You Be have been always thinking that you're well, uh, well, you deserve what you got. Well, not that I deserve. I always felt like I didn't deserve it, but I, but I always felt like I should be there though. Like I didn't feel like I was ever like ripping anyone off or like, I was, you know, even when I like fake it till you make it, I was always honest. I was always like, oh, I've never done this job before, but I will, you know, or I don't know where I'm going, but I'm going there and I don't know, you know. So for some reason, I always had that humility to go, I, I just don't know. Where imposter syndrome is like saying, I know, but not knowing, you know. So then so you're like, someone's going to find out that yeah, I don't yeah, know. Yeah. Eventually know? they're going to figure it Eventually out. Eventually they're going to figure it out and I, I shouldn't fake. be here. I'm and, fake. and since you said I'm fake from the first moment, well, not fake, but I'm not good or I don't exactly. know. And it's yeah, like yeah. you lower the defense of the person that exactly. you're in front of as well. Yeah. So then it's like, well, I mean. And there's something that through all this conversation, it has been almost your lonely battle like a battle that you are fighting along and this part obviously in the minds and everything like from the point of view that you're telling me and maybe I'm completely wrong mm -hmm. it looks like a really lonely journey yeah. like do you have people around in every point in this life in this time or you no. were just a lonely guy I'm just being a lonely guy it's I think the one of the reasons why and the thing I talk about at ther therapy the most is that I've always felt lonely and I've always felt like I haven't had a mentor. Like always, like I've always like, man, people come to me or like, even when I was young, like my brothers and sisters will come to me. My mom will come to me. My friends will come to me. Father come to you. Everyone. Yeah. Everyone always comes to me. And I'm like, I love that I can be that, but I've never felt what it feels like to have that. To be taken care of, right? Yeah. Like I've, yeah, I've never felt like if something was going to give way, I, I wouldn't be caught. Yeah. It never felt like that. No so, one being taken care of makes you to be always alert, right? Because yeah. you know if there's something dangerous is coming to you, you know what is going to defend you. Exactly. And so I probably deal with things differently to how other people will deal with it. Like when I'm like threatened by something or someone's attacking me or something, mm. it's like it's a very different approach. And I think one of the reasons being is because I'm like, well, that's all good for you guys to all say, but it's me versus them, the their community and their world and, and everything else. And like, There isn't anyone that's going to step in for me. And I only know that because that's been my whole life. That's does my it, conditioning. Does it make you feel that you don't need people around you? That you don't need help? That you can do everything? That you don't need people to go through life? I, I do feel like I don't need to ever rely on anybody. Yeah, like I, I don't expect anyone to give me an opportunity or to give me help or anything. And if it comes, that's when the tremendous amounts of gratitude comes because I'm like, oh, wow. It's like, giving me something. Yeah, you gave me something. I didn't I didn't expect it. I didn't ask for it. I didn't, you know, I didn't think it's going to come, but it's it's here and I'm really grateful. What's been the person you would say that I give you the most? Uh, Lilo. Yeah. <laughs> so how, because, <laughs> well, for those who are listening, they're yeah, married. My, my wife, yeah. Which is the point when she came back to your life? Um, Probably exactly when 
I sorted my shit out and I got confident in myself again and I knew who I was and where I wanted to go and I think she was the same. Like she didn't know who she was and she was a shell of herself after the cafe and after losing everything and probably making the wrong choice on me to be honest and on, on a lot of things, yeah. And um, I think she probably came back because she was like, shit, this guy is like a, he's not going anywhere. Like he's a fighter. He's a fighter. He's like, a fucking yeah, fighter, man. And um, yeah, she just came back one day and I think, to be honest, I kind of let go because it was one of those things that was like, it was amazing when it was there, but then it was over and I was like, I knew it, that I wasn't going to last, you know? And then when it came back, I was like, shit, this is, it's, I kind of felt like I was playing with fire because I was like, it's happiness and pain all in one. It's yeah. like, what do I want? Well, also, <laughs> you have you have something that's worth it, no? And then yeah. that's a scary thing. Like, exactly. You can lose it. You can lose something. And I think having something to lose makes you, it's the scariest thing, you know, makes you weak in a lot of ways. And so I seen it like that. And so I had to choose, am I willing to go through that pain again and make it work? Or should I just say no and say. move on and you know, or just be by myself, you know? And I decided to make it work because I realized I've been through worse. I've been through it all before. What's it's worth it. Why be it's scared of pain? It. Yeah. It's worth it. The pain. Like if it happened, mm. it happened. But And um, also I knew if I said no, that like I was lonely. And yeah. so that was my, that was my pain. So it's like moving again. It's like, well, I would rather have the chance of happiness than to be controlled by past experiences yeah. and live in fear. So since, you are an educator and you mentioned all like that you, you know, not only the educator thing that you give, you're a giver, you yeah. give, you give, you give, you give. I felt that through your childhood, you didn't got that much from other people. What would say that is that lesson that someone gave you that you really value? What do you learn from someone? It could be Lilo, it could be mm. a mentor, it could be anyone. What, what, what was that moment that you said, wow, this is a beautiful lesson? I've had a lot. And one was definitely from my dad and he, um, I actually... I saved up. I got a job when I was like, I think like 12 years old, eh? like 12 or 13 years old. And I was like washing dishes for the local golf course at nighttime. Um, I'd ride my push bike out there, ride back about midnight. Like it was a hectic job. And yeah, don't tell child services. No, no. <laughs> and um, I saved up about $50. So it was a lot of work. And then from there with the $50, I went to my dad and I was like, dad, I really want a hundred dollars, you know? And he kind of looked at me and he's the opposite to me. Like, he's like, why would you want money? But he said, Jai, if you want that, learn to let go of the 50. And if you can give that to someone, then 100 will come back to you. That's how it works. It's a, it's, everything's based on the value that you give. And I didn't understand what the fuck my dad was talking about. I was like, what? Anyway, he was like, try it. So I was trying to rack my brain thinking, okay, well, now I've got a new problem. I need to go and work out how, who to give $50 to. So I literally went to my neighbor and two neighbors and I was like, hey, I've got some money. Can I go get some like some petrol for your lawnmower and I'll mow your lawns? And they're like, yeah, okay. So I went and spent the 50 and I came back and I got my mower and I mowed and, I, and it took me like all day to mow. And um, at the end of it, they both gave me 50 each. And at the end of the day, I was like, I've got a hundred dollars and I didn't even ask them for money. Yeah. It was magic. It was actually magic. And I came back and I told my dad and I was like, dad, I've got a hundred dollars. And he's like, how'd you do it? And I was like, I gave 50. I just, I just did it without asking for anything. And he's like, and that's how you make money. And I was like, what the fuck? Like, I don't understand how that works, you know? 
And um, that one weird lesson, like it, it took me longer to really understand it. But when I became a teenager, I really did start to understand. I was like, the world's kind of broken up between people that take and people that give. And so often there's so many people that are so scared of giving too much, but I actually never see anyone that gives too much. I just see people that give to the wrong people and that's all. And so it, it was just like everything, my existence is only the value of, of which I give to the world. It's not what I take from the world. That doesn't make my value. That just takes what I've, what I've taken. And so with that philosophy, I always think about everything that I create. I'm like, what is the value that I'm giving to the world in here? And then is that equal to the goals that I want to achieve in terms of maybe it's monetary success or maybe it could be a partner or whatever it is. Like there's that, that. So for instance, if it's for a partner, I'm like, you know, I'm getting back with Lilu here. It's like, am I a good enough partner that could make her happy? Could I give her happiness? And when I think about it and I'm like, well, actually I really think I can, I've worked on myself. And then from there, as a result, I get double the amount of happiness back, you know? So it's, it's, it's crazy because everything is connected. It's also like <laughs> it's all connected. Yeah. taking taking responsibility over, hmm. you know, if I want to have a beautiful relationship, I have to take responsibility. I'm actually working myself to make that person happy. And that's the only thing you can work on. So yeah. if, it's, if it's your own fault and, you know, me and Lily breaking up, like I could say it was her fault going through whatever, but it wasn't, it was completely my fault. And I think about it um, in, a, in a non like um, negative way of just, like what, what, could, right? what can I improve? Like what could I have brought to the table? I didn't bring enough, you know, there was something there. And so I go back to the drawing board. I'm like, where am I lacking in my life? Like, what is it? You know, if I complain, I'm like, Oh, I'm not getting paid enough or I'm not getting valued. Everyone always says like, we're not shooting weddings to start off with. I got so much hate in the industry because I was shooting for free. Then I was undercharging everybody because I was like, you don't know where I, I come yeah, I'm from. coming from. You know, yeah, that's you something don't know that what I'm trying to fucking do yesterday. here. I'm fucking poor and, yeah. I, and I just need to make it in the industry. It's like, easy to judge from a position of privilege, yeah. isn't it? Like everyone is like, firstly, when you had a fight with someone on the street and when you saw someone, you criticize anyone on social media, you had no idea in which point that person is. And I, and I think it's really valuable for people to listen to this because so easily we just see the last part and it's like judging a book by the, by the cover, you know? And, and, by and, the last and, page. Yeah, it's like, no man, you don't understand shit. Like the mm. whole interesting stuff is like, how do you get to that point? Mm. So we have been building all this uh, momentum and all this crazy story. And I know, I mean, I think... We should, we should do more of this episode because there are so many specific topics that we can talk about that I want to wrap up a little bit so people have a whole perception about it. You said that money was the source of the, the solution of all the problems. You finally get Lilo back. You pay your debts. How... Do you made it? Like, how did you became the successful person that you are now? Uh, economically, mentally balanced. What happened? How you finally made it? Well, I had this newfound confidence in myself, and I actually went and worked back for that same guy that gave me a chance when I didn't have a when I was had the electrician um, job when I was in the cafe, and I wrote him message again. So I just got back from the mines and everything. Me and Lilu like are back together. I start working for them. I just sent him a message like, "Can I come work for you guys?" 
And so when I come work there, there was like a hierarchy. And in every niche, there's someone famous, right? Like, yeah, yeah, It's yeah. weird. <laughs> it's really it's weird. weird. Like I was talking because to you, a... You, you wouldn't feel electrician could be famous. No, right? I was talking like, to a Tyler friend the other day and he's literally like, oh man, there's like three top Tylers. Everyone knows them in the whole country, in the world. Like, you really? know, it's weird oh, in wow. every niche. doesn't matter. Anyway, um, when I like came back to being an electrician, I'm like, I'm going to be the best electricians on the planet. Like, that's what I want to do. And I want to start a side hustle. So I started my own electrical company as well. And I was doing paper drops and letterboxes and I was doing everything, hustling, right? Advertising, marketing. But I started working for these guys and they had a position coming up to sort of like run the company in a new area. And um, there was a lot of old electricians have been there for so long and they don't take a day off and everything. And they're all like, everyone's bickering. I was always a loner. So I'd work by myself. I want to work by myself. I'll get the job done. Don't complain. You know, I'll do more work than everybody else. Keep my head down, work, work, work. Anyway, they'd always be bickering like, oh, I'm going to get the pay rise. I'm going to get it. I'm going to get it. And I remember like we were sort of sitting around this room and they're all arguing. They're all asking each other, like all saying to each other, who's going to get it. But no one ever mentioned me. And I was sitting there and I was like, I don't know why, but I, I know I'm going to get it. Like I, I don't even need to be in this conversation because, because that whilst they're all bickering, my boss is a smart guy is what I was thinking. I was like, this guy, he was a millionaire like three times by the time I met him and he's been bankrupt three times. And I was like, I know he knows what goes on more than what they know. Yeah. Anyway, so I had a conversation um, with that boss. He was like inviting me over and stuff and he was like, oh, I had actually um, – I've chosen you and I'd love for you to move to Melbourne to go run this job. This is a big deal. And you're at the top of the top. There's no boss. You employ everyone. You have the credit card. You run the whole job, 300 homes. Like you do the whole thing. I'll pay you bonuses. Real money now. We're real talking money, about real, real money. money. I'll pay you bonuses. Yeah, there was, I think the, it was like a starting wage of like 150000 Then there's like bonuses on top. Then they pay my rent and everything. And I was like, yeah, okay, I'll take it. And then obviously everyone in the company hated me because they're like, who's this guy? The youngest electrician there comes in, gets the promotion. So I worked down there and I worked my butt off. And I moved into this apartment block with really rich people because my boss was paying um, for, for, everything. for everything. And this is the first time I've been around people with money. And so this weird thing happened to me. I was walking through and I noticed everyone had really nice cars and I noticed everyone had really nice houses and nice furniture and everyone was dressed really nicely. And I was like... I probably make a better wage than everyone here and I have nothing. What the fuck is going on? And then I was like, oh, because I didn't go to school. They all know about money and I don't. I was like, that's what it is. And, I was, and then I was starting to really rack my brain. I was like, there's something here. I don't know what it is. I was like, I need to read some books. And I hated reading because I was really bad at reading. So I started reading some books on finance and then I got more interested in it. Then I started reading more. Then I started obsessing. And then I paid an accountant to go to an accountant to just like talk to him about some stuff. Then I paid a financial advisor, like 20 grand over the year to listen and talk to him, learn some stuff. And after about a year, I was like, wait, and a penny dropped. And I was like, I think I've cracked it and I know how money works now and I want to test it. And at this stage, I was saving up all my money. So I had a hundred grand cash. So I went to the bank and I was like, I want to borrow a million dollars. And the <sighs> bank was like, a million dollars? Who are you? Well, what are you doing? I was like, I'm buying two properties. And they're like, all right. And so they lent me the money and I was like, oh my God, I did it. And I come back to Lilo. I was like, I borrowed a million dollars. Like, you know, this is going to be crazy. So I went and bought a property. Then I, and then a month later, I found another property and I bought that. So I was fully maxed out in debt. And then the second that I bought that second property, I started playing around with photography when I was in the mines, but like not too much. But the second I got the photography, I was like, okay, so I love photography and stuff. I don't really need my job anymore because I already bought the properties. 
So that's good. So we're good, right? And so um, I talked to Lee. I was like, oh, I was thinking about quitting my job. And I went to work the next day after buying the properties. And you got to sign a thing saying, you know, nothing's going to change in my job or anything. Yeah, of course, because they had to keep that the balance. Got to keep it good, right? Yeah. Anyway, yeah. so I went, went in there and I rang my boss up and I was like, hey, so I bought some properties yesterday. And he was like, oh, congratulations. I was like, yeah, so I'm going to quit my job because I don't need a job anymore. Got Shit, the properties. You were fearless, man. Yeah. And he's like, oh, okay. So I came home, told Lily that afternoon, I was like, I quit my job. And she's like, what are you going to do? I'm like, I'm going to be a full-time wedding photographer. She's like, really? You've never shot a wedding? And I was like, I know, it's going to be amazing. Anyway, so I quickly had to think, like, how do I become a wedding photographer? And so this is sort of like... Lila was like, you should start Instagram. Like it's a new app. And I was like, okay. Whoa. So I started this Instagram. Good and I was like, what should I call it? And she's like, I don't know. And so I called it Free the Bird. Um, and then I was like, wait, I'm going to go and book some clients. So I talked to a couple of people around the area and they're like, oh, people don't get married in winter, man. You got to wait till summer. And I was like, summer? I don't have any money. Like I, yeah. I just spent all so you didn't, my savings. You didn't, have, you didn't know anything about wedding no, photography. Nothing. Really. I didn't know how to use my camera out of automatic mode. So how, 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 what, where did it come in that love for photography? I just loved it because um, when I just started playing with it in the mines, when everyone else was going to the pub, I would grab a camera. You were already and shooting. And I was just like shooting some stuff. Not out of manual mode or anything. Yeah, yeah, but just you were liking the part of I loved it, okay, right? Yeah. Anyway, and the reason why wedding photography is because I actually had someone, I had a blog and I'd post my photos and it was called Free the Birds. So none of the, none of the miners would be able to find my stuff. So it was un, not under my name. And then, so they, um, someone got in touch with me and said, would, would you shoot my wedding? And I was like, oh yeah, I'll do that. And I was like, I've never been to a wedding before. And so I had that booked in and I don't think, oh, I think I did charge them like $500 or something. So I was like really nervous about it. Never been to a wedding before. Quit my job to go full time now because I was like new career. Let's go, and then um, I was I was like racking my brain. I was like, babe, I did the wrong thing because like registrations coming up on the car. We got no money. I just spent every cent on these houses. I like didn't have enough for rent for the next week, and I was like, we need to like really do something here. And she's like, well, how are we going to survive until, because she was at, uh, I was also supporting her for university. So she was a uni student. So she had no, no job. Uh, she had like a little job um, working just like a couple of hours per week at like a health food store at the front. So I, um, I was like, okay, so maybe we need to go to the Northern Hemisphere. Like there'll be weddings there. Like it's not winter there. That was my like thinking. And I was like, what if we go to America and then we just start shooting some weddings there? And then she's like, well, what, how do we do that? And I'm like, well, we've got a TV. I've got that car at the back. Like we've got a few things, like let's sell it all and let's get some tickets and let's go and just sort the rest because out. Because you were paying the debt now. You were paying the two properties that you just got. Yeah, it's got the properties and everything and this nice apartment and everything. So uh, we moved out of the apartment. I put all of our stuff up for sale. I sold the car for cheaper than it should have been. I bought the two tickets to America, like one-way tickets for three months. Now I was like, okay, well, now I need some bookings over there. Like I need something. And so, um, and so the 20 grand paid for the flights plus gave us about 10 grand for the three months for me and Lilo. So then I contacted, I just started writing emails to wedding photographers over there, wedding planners, wedding venues, like everyone until a couple of people got back to me and like, oh yeah, you want to shoot for free. I've got a couple of leads who can send you. So I started getting a couple of leads and by the time we got over, I booked about eight, eight weddings across America in different places. But like I didn't charge them and I'll just say like, they'll be like, oh, we're getting married in Chicago. I'm like, oh, that's good. I'm actually going to be in Chicago on that weekend. And I'll quickly book a flight because then I'm there, you know. So I was making my own break. So after that three months, man, we fucking struggled because we ran out of money. Yeah, of course. So then we had to go, 
Yeah, it was America. So we had to go and do wolfing, which was like worldwide organic farming and live on a farm, just like pick vegetables just so we could get to the next wedding. Like there was no credit cards. There was no money at home. Like my parents don't have money. There's no lifeline. Leela's parents got no money. And I remember this was like the hardest part was the last wedding I shot was the one in Chicago and it was for my friends, now like best friends. But I remember... I turned to Lilu just before that wedding night and I was like, babe, we don't have enough money to get to the airport tomorrow for the plane. And I, was, I felt like such a failure. I was like, I just taken this around. I sold all that shit. I moved out of the thing. I don't even have enough money to get us to the airport to get home, just to get home to nowhere. And she was like, oh my God. And, I, and like, she's like, it'll work itself out. I remember at that moment, like Harrison walked in the guy that I was shooting his wedding and he was like, um, Jai, I want to give you a tip. You know, and I think he handed me, maybe it was up $100 or $200. And I'd usually say no. And I was like, thank you. You've got no idea how much I need this right now because I wasn't telling him. So I got that money and that got us from the airport, no, from the wedding to the airport and then from the airport in Melbourne home. And that was it. It was like just enough money. But after that trip, um, and I didn't really process it because I was just hustle mode. But I submitted it into some magazines and stuff. But my Instagram started blowing up because it was like, who's this Australian guy that's just like shooting, shooting all over the world? I was shooting everything. I would literally stop on the side of the road, we'd get a thrift store, take photos of Lilu in a dress. Like I'll shoot anything any, everywhere for proper, everyone. Proper hustle. And when, when I went around, I went to every brand. I stopped in Richard Photo Lab. Like I met the people at Rangefinder. Like I went everywhere, met everyone. So when I come back, they started emailing me saying like, Jai, we love your hustle. We'd love to sponsor you, you know. And then I had like um, Hello May magazine reaching out. Like we'd love to feature this wedding and that one and that one. That was like the Australian magazine. Junebug was like, we'd love to feature this and this. Instagram was blowing up. And then from all of that, I started, I was like all of a sudden known as like the Australian wedding, international wedding photographer. And people started sending me all these inquiries. And I was like, holy fuck. And I was still doing it for like $500, $600. And so from that first year, that's when all the other guys started reaching out. Like all the people I looked up to at that stage that I met. And um, like the big photographers and they're all like, you're undercutting the market, you're ruining the industry, like you're doing this and this. But I was like, I haven't brought enough value to the industry. I just started. Yeah, I just started, I've just huh? started. Like I'm like, this is, I'm, yeah, this yeah. is, I'm just making I've been in a yeah, wedding in yeah, my yeah, life. Yeah. <laughs> and so everything kind of like blew up for me in that first 12 months. And I, and I said yes to jobs that were like that paid me lots and ones that didn't pay me nothing, ones that asked for discount. I said yes to everything. Like they'll be like, oh, it's out of my budget. I'm like, don't worry, I'll do a discount. What can you afford? What's in yeah. your bank account? Yeah, yeah. And they'll go, oh, you know, I know you're asking for like $2,000, Jai, but our max budget's 800. I'm like, book it in. You know, so it's just like booked in everything. It didn't matter at all. And at the end of that year, I actually looked at the books and I was so shocked because I was like, we actually turned over over $100,000. Just because I said yes to everything, didn't think about anyone. You were just focusing on creating, just creating, creating. creating. That was it. Just build the portfolio, say yes, shoot, build the portfolio. And then at the end, I was like, oh my God, like I didn't have any money because I spent it all on everything. But I was like, how did I get paid that much money when I was just fucking doing my thing? And back in 2013, no one got paid six figures really, unless you were yeah. like the top dogs. Yeah, yeah. So that was the start of my whole career, you know, and then oh. I got asked to talk at like a workshop and then, then you know, you grew then- up. Yeah. And then shit just started blowing up. And then I was like, whoa, fuck, we're here. And then shit. the whole thing is like, I became an educator in 2015 because I did cop so much hate for two years from all the people that were like above me because there were so many gatekeepers. And literally the reason why I started a workshop was like, man, there's got to be a better way and a more supportive community. And I hate that I've been dragged through this. No one wants to like, I was like, what's, why are we such closed-minded industry? No one wants to help us. 
And I was like, I'm starting my own thing. And yeah, that was 2015, my first workshop. And then look at you now. slowly built from there. <laughs> yeah. Look at you now. So <laughs> fucking hell. <laughs> so I'm not going to even get into the business map of that. Because yeah. that's a whole, I think we should do a whole episode about the business map. Oh, one we day. should, because that's actually just that's as whole, crazy of a yeah, story. No, I like, can't imagine. Yeah. I can't imagine. Uh, <laughs> but before we finish, I would like, to, we have been talking about the past, so I want to know what is next. And I, it's funny because I was thinking, you just made him out with the electricity thing in Melbourne. And mm. then you almost in like not thinking about it, decided to put yourself again in a situation of, Starting it's almost again. like you repeat the story, right? Like you like I to do put it over yourself, and over. Yeah. to put yourself in an uncomfortable. Well, the weird thing was like, I got at the top of my game as electrician. And so like people knew me, like, you know, it was like yeah, the guy, was, that, like, guy that like, yeah. you know, hustled, like all the engine, I was starting to do the electrical engineering on the job. Like everyone knew me. And so I was like, man, I'm at the top of my game. There's nothing else. So I quit. And then when I got to the top of my game, as I felt as a photographer, it's the second that I quit. Cause I was like, man, I'm, I'm like, what's going to happen here? I'll win one more award or I'll shoot one more amazing wedding. I'm like, what else happens? And so I quit to become an educator. Cause I was like, I want to be at this bottom where I'm like starting something completely new. And you know, that was in 2020. And it's just been, it's been crazy again, because it's again, like you have to start and try and make your way to things. And it's- no, you have, you have <laughs> something inside you, man. It's a flame, right? Like <laughs> I never, like, it's funny. Like you decide to be, you know, the, even from the coffee shop, it was a big coffee shop it wasn't a normal coffee place <laughs> and then for the electricity from the man you always try to be the best best photographer turning around the world the education you have done things that i mean if anyone who is listening doesn't understand of business you have been basically been in my opinion the michael jordan of the education of wedding photography <laughs> that definitely like no one had thought no basically no one had thought as big as you have thought Mm. That, that's it. Like, I don't know what other people have achieved, but the simple fact of how big you think, no one has done it. Mm. So I just want to end up thinking about, tell, if you can tell me, what do you think is next? And, and this is a goal, like my unrealistic goal right now. And we've always have, we always got these like crazy milestones. And I remember a milestone for like 10 years was I was going to make a million dollars one day in a single year. And I did that in 2020, which was amazing. And, and that's like the, for the next episode, we got to get into that because that was a crazy story. And now like I did that with the monetary thing. Now it's like, you know, what, what else do I want to chase? And as an educator, like honestly, the, I don't know why, but the North star for me is to be a New York times bestseller. And it's, there's a few different reasons. One is like, I'd love to share my story. The second reason is, I didn't really have much education. I couldn't really read very well when I was 20 years old. I had to really learn how to read. Then have, like, I didn't have the, I felt like the privilege to read books when I was younger. So like, it was such a privilege for me in my twenties to be able to pick up a book, pay for a book, read the book, have time to read the book. And so books and authors have left such a profound impact on my life that I think even though now we're in a world where it's like AI and we can get quick answers and stuff, I think there's still such a place for someone to share their thoughts and theories that actually has lived through it opposed to a machine. And so I think like I have a story that I can share in a way that could help one person that's myself. Yeah. When I was another like, guy who is another maybe- guy. When I was like, if I had picked up my book when I was, you know, even 24 years old, I would have read it and I would have been like, shit. 
there's someone else, you know, all I wanted was validation. That's all I wanted. And my book would have given me the validation of like, man, keep showing up like it and keep giving and keep doing the things that you're doing. And um, I think that would be the profound effect or the legacy that I would love to create with uh, writing lots of books, not just one book. I want to write lots of books. Knowing your past, I think you won't only get a bestseller, but owning the New York <laughs> Times probably and not doing that. <laughs> So, yeah, man, I, I just uh, want to say thank you for opening yourself to this conversation. I think it has been amazing. Yeah, well, think, thanks for asking me I think the people, questions. Man. Yeah, people are going to be amazed. <laughs> I, I think if they were not amazed yet, they definitely should be. <laughs> if not, they're jealous. <laughs> yeah, I hope to have more episodes of this one for sure. Yeah, and I think this is something that um, I'm getting more and more comfortable opening up with because... There's this weird thing, like sometimes someone asked me not too long ago if they could do like a documentary on my life and what's going on and stuff like that. And at that stage, I got this weird, unique thing. It's not that unique, but like with my brothers and sisters, um, we, there's, so there's three different dads and one mum, And so we all have like sort of a different dad. And I actually have a different dad, biological dad than, than the rest of my brothers and sisters. And they don't know that well, they've never met him. I'm the only one that's met him. Um, as I'm older as well, but he didn't raise me. So I don't see him as my dad. But when they asked me to do that, it was at the end of a day where my biological dad, which I don't really know at all, contacted me and I was in Sydney and he was in rehab. And so this was in my twenties. Um, no, this was, um, yeah, this was, I was like 20, maybe 29, 28 or something. So he contacted me and it was so hard to walk into hospital to see a dad that I didn't really know going through the same thing. And I seen him the same as my last dad, you know, like my, you know, it's like, and it's, it's just like a hard thing to go down there. And then you kind of go, fuck, like, this is why am I in this now? And like, I've already dealt with this. Why am I dealing with this again? And so when I got the message, like, we would love, you know, I heard your story. I'd love to do like a little documentary. And I'm like, I would love to do that if it was past tense, but I feel like it's real. Like it's, it's life right now. Like I'm still hustling. I'm still going through. Yeah. The story is still going. It's still, it's still going. It's like, it's not like I've made it and I'm like reflecting. I'm like, man, I've got shit to do goals to go hit. Like there's things I want to be, you know, there's so many things to do. And so I think about when I share things like this, it's sometimes it's hard for me to share because it kind of feels like as if it's past tense, but really like my life it does still feel like I live a lot of this stuff and I'm still processing a lot of the trauma and I'm still trying to work on myself and be the best human I can be. So I can still show up for everybody like I try to. And like listening to you is, it feels like it's all a huge story really connected. Like it's, it doesn't seem like it's finished or like that oh, part, totally. that's part, yeah, like yeah. it's like, like really connected. The intro. <laughs> yeah yeah it looked like the intro and it's <laughs> a fucking amazing one wow. I, I hope it's not like those films that i start really well and they get boring <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but I, I don't think you will allow that <laughs> so just keep it easy for a few years you know like it mm. doesn't have to get crazy yeah man like thank you again for everyone who is listening Go to Jai's social media, send him an email, tell what you think. Uh, <laughs> I <love> this story. <laughs> send me a DM, not an email. Send a DM. I'll, I know. Yeah, I DM better. DM. You don't, yeah, he's to reach now to yeah. check uh, DM. First thing the, I did is email. outsource emails. Yeah, that's a, clever, that's a clever one. So, yeah, man, thank you so much. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. And thanks for letting me share.